You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. Hello and welcome to Lab Notes. I'm your host, Leo Stevens, and today I'm joined by an inspirational young scientist and entrepreneur, Anastasia Volkova. Anastasia has claims to being an Australian scientist by way of a PhD from the University of Sydney, but it's probably fairer to call her a global citizen. Born in the Ukraine in the final days of the Soviet Union, Anastasia's passion for science and engineering saw her study at Ukraine's National Aviation University, the Warsaw University of Technology in Poland, and Cisco's Bionic University. Still seeking new challenges and experiences, Anastasia accepted an offer to undertake a PhD in Australia refining drone navigation systems in collaboration with the local defence industry. It was during this PhD that Anastasia spied an opportunity to bring her technical expertise to bear in agriculture, using drones and remote sensing to monitor crop health, improve yields and enable a more efficient use of key inputs like water and fertiliser. Her startup, Fluorosat, has since grown through several incubator programs and has received backing from leading deep tech funds like Main Sequence Ventures, Artesian, and most recently Microsoft's M12 fund. Now based in California, Anastasia joined me over Skype to talk entrepreneurship, agriculture, and female leadership in STEM. Anastasia, welcome to Lab Notes. Thank you for having me, Leah. So there's quite a lot to get to, but to start, I wondered if you could tell us where you're based at the moment and what Fluorosat is up to there. Sure. I'm currently in uh, Pasadena, which is close to uh, Los Angeles, California. Um, Fluorosat, we are an agricultural technology company. Uh, and what we do is basically help monitor crops and manage them with data-driven decisions. We help farmers and their advisors around the world make more timely, more accurate uh, management decisions for a range of crops. That's what Fluorosat does. So you're somewhat of a global citizen, having worked across multiple continents, and you're clearly undeterred by borders and adventures. What do you think drives you to take such drastic moves in your life and career? That's a great question. Um, I believe that to have a broader perspective on the world, you actually need to have a broader range of experiences. Uh, And Europe is quite a multinational area, so to speak. It's, uh, you know, you can call it a union, you can call it part of the continent, but in Europe where you can cross borders without noticing them, you don't really think of one country being drastically different from the other that you would only associate yourself with one of them. Uh, And I always saw that different nations, different places in the world have their own environments where I guess the innovation, the thought, the creativity just comes together differently. And that was always interesting to me. You know, when we are thinking of French culture, German culture, Polish culture, Ukrainian culture, Australian culture, American culture, or, you know, Latin American culture, how really different is that versus, you know, fundamentally the same and being human? And so I guess I wanted to... I always felt like I was a global citizen. My my family also has a very international family tree, uh, so I never felt like I was bound to a certain place, and I wanted to explore where was the place that was going to be called my own. 
Fair enough. And, and I did want to tap into your, your roots growing up in Ukraine as well. You, you were born in the early 90s and it was a very tumultuous time for the region with the collapse of the Soviet Union. What are your memories of that early childhood and your family life amid that shifting social landscape? Yeah, and I guess as for, for every kid, their memories are, are, are shaped by the memories of their parents. And so my perspective on that time is certainly the perspective of my mother reflecting on uh, on raising me and still um, having some support from the Soviet medical systems, you know, having nutrition uh, supplied for her child. But at the same time, the private sector and decentralization really uh, shaking the industry and the economy uh, and uh, some just shocking things happening like not just privatization of uh, metallurgical plants, but even appropriation or change of uh, of ownership that wasn't necessarily legal from some of the big enterprises that were very quickly transferring to private hands. It was a very wild east, if you can call it. Yes, I definitely think we can call it the wild east. Um, did you have any positive experiences with the growing capitalist and entrepreneurial systems that were being put in place? Um, so in my family, the venture that uh, my godmother uh, had, um, so my godmother was really a National Science Award beekeeper. <laughs> she, was, she studied uh, the ways to use bee products in creating some medically applicable products that would be able to treat either our either skin or internal organs and she, she had developed a lot of interest in methodologies and then at some point mom was telling me that she was actually commercializing it and i have not learned that until i guess just a few years ago when she decided to tell me knowing that i'm so deep into entrepreneurship myself that this is actually someone who i deeply was inspired by that my godmother basically she had the same path um and i I remember mom reflecting on it and she was saying, you know, I, I wanted to follow her, but it was just too dangerous back in those days. It was just too dangerous to leave the government paid job and be left without anything, not knowing what the economy of tomorrow would look like and how the, would these private ventures be supported uh, and would there be a market for them? So it's, uh, yeah, I recently actually discovered that those were some of the experiences in my family whilst I largely considered my parents to be, you know, engineers and teachers, uh, not particularly entrepreneurial types. Well, yeah, I did want to talk about that scientific and engineering mentorship as well. I know your mother was an electrical engineer. What can you tell us about those family influences on you scientifically? Absolutely, yes, yes. And I really saw that part of the family um, granddad, mom, and um, godmother—they encouraged me always to to ask questions, and they always treated me like an adult around the house. Uh, to to tell, I actually was uh, aggregating everything they were saying, and I was making up my own stories. And it was interesting that one of the most famous family stories is that I actually had my own enterprise, and I had a position in that enterprise that I completely made up, obviously. <laughs> um, that I had a position like mom. Um, so I was managing a department, managing people, managing uh, planning, and uh, uh, the enterprise itself was specializing in metallurgical production, which was similar to my granddad uh, and uh, a brother's specialization. And it's all, it was basically a mix. How, as a young child, I've put out everything that I heard around the dinner table into one absolutely wild blended story. And at the age of four or five, I was imagining that I would 
have something to contribute to when chatting about how was uh, everyone's day around the dinner table by telling them how I had uh, equally interesting occupation <laughs> compared to them. So definitely deep, deep inspiration right there. <laughs> As time went on, Anastasia's curiosity, academic talent and entrepreneurial spirit grew from childhood imaginings to increasingly underpin her real-life studies and career trajectory. She undertook a Bachelor of Science from Ukraine's National Aviation University, a Master's from the Warsaw University of Technology, entrepreneurial skills training from Cisco's Bionic University, and ultimately started her career with Aspen Technologies, where she helped build and market recruitment aggregation software. I asked Anastasia where she felt her career was headed during those early days studying and working in Eastern Europe. Yeah, so people often think of those choices as something that was kind of destined to happen whilst I keep reminding those who ask me this question that actually, you know, the story makes sense retrospectively, but it wasn't all planned. I entered the National Aviation University and I picked up the degree there because they actually had a very good international program. There was very few specializations uh, in um, the um, educational institutions in the capital in, in Kiev um, that offered exchange programs and they offered that offered diplomas in English. And this was one of those cases where the control systems faculty actually had the accreditation with universities overseas and was able to offer that. And I thought, okay, well, I like computers. Technology sounds like something that I understand. My family said, you know, like you always can go and do second degree in international relations and international relations management that uh, was at the time so appealing to me. And they were highlighting the fact that it's unlikely that I'm going to go and get a technical education as a second degree, as a uh, second major. And so I thought that was a sensible choice to get the hard things done first uh, and then to relax into, I guess, less less technical degrees, and this is what I did. Well, I guess the plan to get less technical didn't really work out because you ultimately came to Australia to take up a PhD scholarship studying drone navigation at Sydney University. What, what drew you out to Australia? It was all very much in vain of uh, exploration of new places and finding the perfect place for me to call home. I was not quite happy in Ukraine. It has rainy winters and it's too hot in summer. And the economy obviously is pretty volatile. And I felt that with my skills, I probably could pick a place where I would want to live. And Australia looked like a place that people described to be quite a nice, uh, <laughs> nice country to choose. And so I wanted to explore whether that would be a country that would be suitable for what I wanted my future to look like. Um, and I thought that going there and trying it out with that longer term commitment with a PhD would be a suitable way of doing it. Uh, and I wanted to really gain, gain more experience and broaden my horizons. So I chose Sydney Uni because there was a professor who saw that I could with my skills and previous academic work uh, really grow into someone who does more on the remote sensing and navigation, who I was always passionate about. The gentleman's name is Professor Peter Gibbons, and he effectively took me <laughs> to Sydney University. I was able to 
apply for uh, a scholarship. It was a rigorous process. I eventually got the, the scholarship. There was some waiting time on that. And I got to Sydney Uni. We were able to define the topic that was interesting, extremely interesting for me. Uh, and right at the time when the drones were starting to boom, I started working on this project of using visual features from cameras on high altitude drones, especially on um, military grade high altitude drones um, for navigation. So this is a way of basically saying that the drone is able to see where it is at the moment uh, to locate itself in the environment that it knows according to its base map and uh, be able to plan the route to where it needs to go. So actually it was mapping purpose the main one. So the drone is out there somewhere, it's trying to maybe find uh, a feature that it's looking for, um, but it's an aircraft upon itself and its mission is to come back and construct a map of the environment that would be useful for civilian as well as defense applications. So we're very close now to the founding of Fluorosat, but to get there I wanted to ask about your colleague Alexi. He ultimately became an early employee of Fluorosat, but you two seemed to share your entrepreneurial spirit and had actually attempted a few other projects before you settled on Fluorosat. So I wanted to ask about your relationship with Alexi and how they shaped the early days of your company. Yeah, sure. So um, Alexi was the, the first um, employee of Fluorosat um, before starting Fluorosat. So way back in the day when I was, as you mentioned, working for, for Aspen Labs, just finishing my master's degree, we met, we were working for another startup and we felt that we, we just gelled. We just wanted to do something together. Um, we have met in the same job at the same startup, the third person, a friend of ours, and she had an idea um, of, a, of a startup. We started working on that project, really loved working together. We have achieved moderate success with that and decided with Alexi that that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to effectively build software for people um, who have problems that this software can solve. And Alexi really coached me into becoming a person who was you know, driven by the, the customer needs, uh, always ensuring me that the technical part was manageable between the two of us with him. And uh, this is, I think, I think something that really encouraged me to take on Fluorosat, knowing that he will back me from a technical perspective, that he could deliver on the, I guess, the even the web platform to contain the, the idea, the knowledge, some of the scientific research that I wanted to see come together and uh, form a solution. So let's jump into Fluorosat now. I believe it was founded in 2016, which is also still very much in the middle of your PhD. Could you talk us through UCID's entrepreneurship program and how you managed to multitask starting a business with your PhD? <laughs> yeah, it requires some interesting skills, I can tell you. <laughs> and a brilliant supervisor who allows you to do that. I, I um, can never give enough credit to my professor, Peter Gibbons, for that. That was really a very, very generous guidance that, that he gave me, that he, he allowed me to really dedicate myself to both of them at the same time equally, trusting that I will complete my thesis in the right amount of time. And I actually have met that objective. So in terms of the UCID courses, I was in France on an internship in the middle of my uh, PhD, uh, and I was coming back from France and I learned about this course uh, that really bring me back to the days of doing Cisco entrepreneurship and um, mingling with, you know, the startup community in Europe. Uh, 
um, and I really wanted to do it. I wanted to see what are the problems that with my newly acquired technical knowledge um, I was able to, to solve. It was a, a great opportunity that was called Invent in the Future. It was basically a, a short course for the postgraduate students to validate ideas around how maybe their research or their colleagues' research could apply to the real-world problems. And I really loved the experience with the team that was supporting this early idea and, and research to start exploring whether this was even a viable option. And this included a bit of market search. Um, the idea that came out of the course was quite different to what Fluorisat needed to be. Um, so there was kind of a certain point uh, where I had to divorce that exploration for the sake of the university course versus uh, the business that needed to hit the ground running. But that was a, an amazing opportunity to just basically say, okay, uh, these are the hours that I'm going to dedicate to, to research this idea has legs. So Fluorosat's idea was all about applying sensing technologies to improve farming methods. And part of your early work included a field trip to a cotton farm in Narrabri in northwest New South Wales. Could you take us back to those early trials and your experience on the farm? <laughs> yeah, so this is something that comes back to this idea of what Fluorosat kind of started with. We needed to acquire our own data to validate the research that we were doing. Uh, whilst many other companies have made it uh, their um, sole raison d'être, Fluorosat was always destined to be the company that was doing more analytics. Uh, so I remember being in Airbri, I remember how hot that day was uh, when we were flying those drones and we needed to repeat those flights several times in the season. The drones were really the, the hype of the day, I guess, back then. Um, and we just needed to have it as a platform uh, for data acquisition that we could fly the multispectral cameras that had some chlorophyll uh, sensitive bands for us to demonstrate the point that there's value in measuring it uh, and we could link it back to the nutrient efficiency of the plants. This is a research that also in parallel was conducted in other countries and later on we found out that GRDC that later on became the investor in Fluorosat, they also were conducting similar trials. So I guess I quickly realized that although that initial traction was really required and important for us to understand the whole process, that wasn't necessarily as scalable as I wish Fluorosat would be. And so flying the drones and the research trials is a great fit, but when you're trying to help the agriculture globally, you really need to look at more scalable platform for acquisition of the data, uh, like aerial acquisition from a fixed wing airplane or satellite. And, and so we were correlating our observations from those early trials from drone imagery back to satellite and also lab tests, something that gave us and our early customers con confidence to say this is going to work and we could turn the science that was on the shelf um, at uh, you know in CRDC uh, or in GRDC or in CSIRO all of those became our investors um, uh, later on we we wanted first to see that validation because you can't build a business on the science that you haven't proven and taking it out to the field testing it out this was what those trials were about From its first drone flights over Narrabri, 
Sat has grown into a holistic crop monitoring solution, bringing satellites, aircraft, on-site monitoring and infrared imaging together as a package of software and analytics that distills critical insights on crop health out of this multifaceted data set. Throughout this journey, Fluorosat's progress has been nurtured by Australia's growing stable of incubators and support programs, including time at Muru-D, Cicada Innovation, and most recently Austrade's landing pad program in California. I asked Anastasia about the impacts these programs have had on Fluorosat's growth. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would like to, I guess, highlight those experiences as uh, the ability to connect with the network of experts and to have the mentorship and support of the people who have either taken businesses through these business development and technology validation processes before or have helped others take their businesses through it. And whilst innovation itself, every company and every innovative product has a lot of things that are very special about it and unique. The process of designing, validating a business model is not particularly unique. There is, you know, a science of uh, product development. There is a science of uh, sales. There is a science of marketing. There is a science of validating a business model. And those incubators are really the opportunities where you can really deep dive into the cracks of your business and understand what makes it, what is going to be your differentiating factor, how much capital do you need to run it, is it going to be something that you want to see globally or is it going to be the best in class locally. And once you've figured that out, kind of internal housekeeping is done and your customers are in agreement that you are in the right more than you are in the wrong, you really need to start networking and connecting to the industry so that you can gain traction and this is where the landing pad program and Australian relationship really helped us get a safe landing into the US market and the expansion that followed. Yes and the expansion you've had in a few short years has been really impressive. On that I wanted to dig into your success in fundraising which is a key driver of rapid growth. You've amassed an impressive stable of backers including local deep tech funds like Main Sequence Ventures and Artesian as well as industry partnerships and most recently the support of leading international funds like Microsoft's M12. What do you feel has been the key driver of your success in pitching to these firms and do you have any advice for other entrepreneurs looking to connect with them? I think I'll give you the most unexpected answer. <laughs> Being honest, I think what attracts me to people and people to me um, is the idea of the meeting of minds and the mission that is driving me is driving uh, the team at Fluorosat and that that same mission resonates with our investors. For me it was equally important to have mentors on around the board uh, table not just people who gave me money and uh, have a completely different idea on how this business needs to be built. I always seek coaching uh, and they're my best coaches um, I guess only uh, second to my customers. <laughs> Yeah, that's a great point. And honestly, I hear that from both sides of the table. Both the entrepreneurs and the angels uh, seem to be looking for that relationship just as much as they're looking for the funding. And the, the best relationships are the ones where there's an individual connection and a mentor relationship alongside the financial commitment. Yes, absolutely. And uh, actually, um, we have not gone so much the angel route as much as we have gone the, the institutional route. But what I have done that was completely different in the Australian venture scenes is that we were able to attract agricultural investors as well 
So uh, the cotton board, we were their first startup investment. Uh, later on, the grain um, RDC also established its fund with uh, Artesian, and they invested in us. I felt that that strategic collaboration was very important because we did not want to reinvent the wheel. These are the industry bodies that look after growers' investments into R&D, and we wanted to become their commercialization and extension arm more than um, we wanted to just say we're going to do the same science on our own. Um, they have 20, 30 years experience in developing that science. And I think this was this was really fundamental to Fluoroside being a collaborative adventure for all of us. I clearly did not see that we could do it all alone. Yeah, I did want to ask about collaboration before we wrap up, because it seems like it has been a really consistent element in your approach, and by extension, the approach Fluorosat has taken as a company. Do you think the collaborative mindset is something that's come out of your scientific background, or do you view it more as a business strategy and necessity for Fluorosat's success? Interesting question. So I guess um, the reason why I am so strongly opinionated about collaboration and integrations is because I believe that the pathway to efficiency and agricultural productivity is all about efficiency as well. And so if we're going to bring to a grower or an agricultural advisor a solution that says, oh, we're going to replace five things that you already have and add two, they are not going to adopt it. What they're going to struggle with in that case is that the new learning curve, the new um, investment into relationships with the new people, with the new support team, uh, with learning the new ways of the new software, it's just frankly too hard when you have a, an agricultural business to run or when you're looking after um, hundreds of thousands of acres worth of farmland for your growers. And integration is really the solution to those problems. Many startups in this space are trying to go in the vertically integrated way to the market. They're going to sell you a bundle of imagery and data acquisition and, and services and, and some maybe analytical insights. And you will be forced to basically overhaul your entire uh, setup for your data management workflow around pulling the analytics and just for the sake of trying out that new technology. Um, I, I think that this is a huge hurdle for, for adoption as well as just a, a, a wasteful approach because that same customer might already be getting imagery from somewhere else. They might already have, um, if they're a, you know, a good customer like everyone wants to have, surely they will already have a fire management uh, system like ProAgricon, Agrian or AgWorld, or they will have an uh, equipment provider for irrigation our partners, Netafim. Um, and so it's just, I think, too, too cocky and arrogant to assume that you are the only one in this ecosystem. I, I think it's paramount for the user experience for it to be integrated. I, I hope that you can see how agriculture is a world of uh, specialized software. <laughs> yes, definitely. But I think I can also see very clearly that your focus on the customer's needs and understanding their decision-making process is a really important factor in why you've been able to position Fluorosat so well and, and hopefully become a valuable piece of the global farm management ecosystem. 
I, I hope so. I, the only thing that I truly believe is the, the customer's word. Um, you know, we can have our projections, we can have our thoughts. Um, I think it's important for us to establish a way that the future can be viewed of this technology and the, the vision for how it needs to be implemented, uh, grown and adopted. But ultimately, the validation behind that vision is, is the customer, is their real adoption, traction, whether they see it being used on their farm. And I think part of it is just really accepting what they're saying, hearing them. It's hearing that they struggle with having so many tabs, that they struggle with data needed to be exported and imported, and that takes too much time. They struggle with the fact that insights from one piece of data and layer of data are not flowing into a solution where they actually are able to manage that insight or act on it. And the more we can listen to our customers and the more it can inform the vision for the future, I think that the more it forms this combined picture of how we see the future and how from now to then there is a pathway that we can walk together. So thanks to Anastasia's drive, Fluorosat is emerging as a serious contributor to modern agriculture providing monitoring services across 15 countries and some 27 million acres of crops, including almonds, olives, potatoes, sugarcane, and cotton. Meanwhile, Anastasia herself has begun to be recognized with awards for entrepreneurship, science, and engineering. Before we parted ways, I wanted to get her thoughts on women's leadership in STEM, the impact on her family's strong female role models, and how she now feels about becoming a role model herself. Yeah, and I really take that seriously. <laughs> I, I, I think that if someone were to, was to tell me that, oh, you know, it's because your, your mom has an electronics degree or because your, um, your, your godmother understands uh, the heavy ins and outs of uh, medicine and, and biology, you're going to be more um, prone to, to take up a technical degree. I, I wouldn't have believed it, but then seeing the people who have not had the, the luxury of seeing that around them and having that to form a young personality, that is really important. And I think there is a, um, a, a need, but also there are many role models now who are, are female leaders in, in technology. We uh, see every day that established corporations like Airbus uh, to financial institutions and, and banks they're all appointing female leaders, you know, de demonstrating that we are becoming more inclusive in, in, in leadership positions as well. But I think every, every female um, is trying to demonstrate that those fears that are more maybe linked to, to gender that gets, you know, get into the heads of young professionals, that all of those things can be overcome and that this is, a, this is normal to have those hesitations and you just need to continue doing what you would like to be doing. And if you're interested in something, trust it. If you find the right people to support you, you'll be able to learn it and not to be, I guess, too afraid to try. That is very important for me as a, as a female technical founder. I want to, to just not have a question when <laughs> my kids grow up. I, I want to not be a female technical leader. I just want to be a leader. Well, that's a wonderful final note, Anastasia, and you're definitely being part of that change. 
Before we say goodbye, I have one question I ask all my guests, which is, do you have any book recommendations for the audience? Um, yes, uh, the first book that comes to mind uh, would be Ben Horowitz's uh, The Hard Thing About the Hard Things. I, I treat that book as something that I basically um, pick it up as a friend's advice and uh, often can open a chapter on something that uh, is currently happening in the business. And uh, I, I feel connected to the, you know, someone who's made a, a, a huge career and an impact in the entrepreneurship and startup space and technology space and feel like that can always feel very supportive um, when you hear that everyone's gone for the same thing. <laughs> so uh, Ben Horowitz is uh, the hard thing about the hard things will be my recommendation. Well, Dr. Anastasia Volkova, thanks so much for joining us on the Lab Notes podcast. It's been a pleasure to hear about your career and the growing journey of Fluorosat. Thank you so much for having me, Liam. Really appreciate it. Well, that's all we can fit into Lab Notes for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you're keen to hear more inspiring stories of innovation, check out our back catalogue and subscribe to the channel so new episodes can appear on your device once a week. Lab Notes is produced by Eon Labs in collaboration with Brenny Digital. You can find links to both of those organisations, along with our guest's biography, the papers we discuss, and more in the description below. Our music is sourced from Pebble Planet Music and mixed by Nat Harris. I'm your host, Dr. Leo Stevens, and until next week, keep inventing.